Do you drink coffee, by the way, uh, or you drink tea? If it's after lunchtime, and normally I wouldn't drink anything hot, I would grab something cold. Uh, but for you, I went with a hot beverage, so I'm having apple chai tea. I drink coffee from the moment I wake up until, you know, two or three cups and then I'm done. That's Stephanie Kelton, our guest today on Coffee with Tony. Stephanie Kelton, who is was an advisor to Bernie Sanders' 2016 presidential campaign. She's a professor at Stony Brook University. She is an author, an economist. Um, she was one of Politico's 50 thinkers, doers, and visionaries transforming American politics in 2016. She is uh, a friend of mine, and uh, I met Stephanie in 2016 during the Trump versus Bernie tour. She came to a show, uh, I think, in Arlington, I think, is where she came, because that was the same show she came to in 2020. Uh, but we've seen each other over the years and um, discussed her modern monetary theory. In fact, she has a book coming out called The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory and the Birth of the People's Economy. Uh, and MMT is all the rage. And in these uh, days of pandemic where federal spending uh, is a must and states and uh, workers, uh, citizens are all desperate to get relief. Uh, MMT, uh, at least to me, seems to be the answer. And the book comes out June 9th, 2020. Uh, so you can uh, Reserve your copy now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or your local bookstore. Contact your local bookstore and, uh, and you know, get uh, get a reservation there. Have them mail it to you. And uh, Stephanie, of course, you can follow her on Twitter, Stephanie Kelton, um, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E-K-E-L-T-O-N. So uh, check it out. Um, yeah, so that is uh, all I have to say. Uh, in terms of introduction. So let's just get into my conversation with Stephanie Kelton. I think the first thing just for listeners to know and understand, it, just an overview of just what modern monetary theory is so that everyone knows, I'm sure you've done this a million times, so I'm sure you have the very shortbread version. Um, and then I have a bunch of things that, I, when I sp talk with Stephanie, what I do is I'm pretty ignorant of economics to begin with. I don't even balance a checkbook. And so uh, what I do is I ask her a bunch of questions, hoping that I will be right one of the times I ask her a question. So we'll do a lot of that today. <laughs> and uh, But let's get just into modern monetary theory and sort of what we think, uh, what, what it is, and uh, then how it's meeting the moment. Okay, so... I mean, I think the easiest place to start for people who just are hearing this for the first time is to say that um, one of the things that we try to do is to help people understand why the federal government is not like a household. You just mentioned your personal you know, checkbook, which you don't balance. Um, and so one of the points is that a currency issuing government, like the federal government of the United States of America, does not face the same kinds of financial constraints that you and I face mm. or that private businesses. Look at all these companies, right? They're on the verge of going under mm -hmm. unless what? Unless the federal government 
steps in mm -hmm. and provides the backstop and provides the resources. Um, state and local governments are not like the federal government. That is why you have Governor Cuomo. That is why you have, you know, mayors across the country uh, begging the federal government mm -hmm. for resources because the federal government can do something the rest of us can't do. Right. It can, if you like, spend money it does not have. Yes. And that that's a big deal, right? Yes. Congress has the power of the purse. Right. So it can, it can run its budget, and in fact, it must run its budget differently from the way that we run our budgets. Right. It can commit to spending money that it doesn't have. The rest of us can't do that. We have to earn or borrow money in order to be able to have dollars and to spend dollars. Federal government is completely different. It's the issuer of our currency can never run out of money can't have bills coming due that it can't afford to pay mm -hmm. like the rest of us can't be forced into bankruptcy like these businesses and maybe like mitch mcconnell wants to see if states maybe want to go bankrupt you know yeah, yeah. so i would just lay that as a sort of starting point for mmt okay. to recognizing what is modern money what is our monetary system all about we have a, a floating exchange rate fiat currency a currency issuing government and that affords the federal government policy space to do the kinds of things, to run its budget and carry out a policy that is oriented around maintaining a healthy, full employment economy. It's the question is, does it want to use the full weight of the congressional power of the purse to do that? Or does it want to hew toward these deficit myths and all oh, the debt and, and, and withhold resources right. that are desperately needed and therefore let the economy um, languish in very depressed conditions because it's afraid to take advantage of the policy space it has to achieve a much better economic outcome. Do you think that that's a fear? So it's interesting because you said afraid. And so these, I guess, sort of the questions I have is that one, it feels as if this sort of regressive balance the budget uh, idea of home budget uh, meets sort of federal budget idea was linked in a way with the balancing of the budget with, uh, and surplus with Clinton. Right. That Reagan had no problem spending. Right. But Reagan wanted to choke out social programs like it was no tomorrow. So that was the philosophy of choking out the action of government in the in society in a way uh, that they believe they should not be interfering because of a, a philosophy that was less of an economic philosophy, more of a social philosophy. Right. Uh, I guess it had roots in, eco in economics, but ultimately Reagan spent and drove deficits like a lunatic, right? Which brought us mourning in America, right? It actually did bring about an economic boom. But then because of the power play between the two parties, we come, we end up having this sort of inhale, exhale, right? Where the inhale is the Republicans who scream about deficits, but then spend like there's no tomorrow. Oh, the other party's coming. We have to get responsible. And it seems like the Democrats bought into this myth and they bought into the idea that they have to be basically the responsible one who reigns it in and brings the money, puts the money in the coffee can. And then, and not to gender these labels, but it's like mom putting the money in the coffee can and then dad coming in at night, sneaking out, grabbing a handful of money and going out to the bar. Right. And it seems like that's what's been ebbing and flowing for the last 40, 50 years. And it's an unnecessary relationship. But do you think that what's happened maybe on the right is a philosophy that's not just 
about fear. Is it, well, I was going to say, is it a fear that they back themselves into a corner that that's sort of one of the levers they can pull to basically constrain the other party and therefore they don't know how to sort of proudly embrace this type of deficit spending and have the Democrats walk themselves into a corner because if they don't look responsible towards the budget, that somehow they will be seen as uh, 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 people who are trying to drive inflation. Yeah. <laughs> cool. See, I got one right. Yeah. I got I one mean, right, Stephanie. Yeah, see? See? You're absolutely right. I mean, this is so much of this is just political theater and both sides know it, right? I mean, you you started off saying um, Reagan was all too happy to embark on, you know, massive increases in defense spending while at the same time doing, you know, huge tax cuts, knowing full well that the impact on the budget would be to drive the budget deeper and deeper into deficit. But no problem with that, right? They never have a problem. They are so good, I think, at staying focused on the agenda. What is it we want to accomplish? And then they just change the narrative. They find the words to make it okay so that whether they have to say, you know, as Reagan did, the supply side stuff with the tax cuts will pay for themselves, which of course they continue to use. Um, if it's a wall, Mexico will pay. They just always find a way right. to maneuver around, you know? Right. Uh, and you're right to say, I think, that the, that the Democrats try to hold themselves to a, a higher standard. Say, yeah. But we are the real party of fiscal responsibility because we delivered the last balanced budget. And not only that, we put the budget into surplus in right. uh, the Clinton years. The budget, the federal government budget was in surplus for four years right. consecutively. And I think that, you know, Democrats still view that as a real badge of honor. Right. And they like to, you know, um, hearken back to the good old days when the federal government's budget was in surplus and we were the good stewards of taxpayer dollars and all that kind of stuff. Right. And, you know, my experience in talking with lawmakers today people in the House and in the Senate is that they understand now in ways that they didn't before that we have pretty much badly misunderstood the federal budgeting process, the role, the important role of right. budget deficits in the economy. And now they're just saying things to me like, how do we message our way out of this? So that's- How do we dig out? It, uh, yeah. Yeah. But that's at least encouraging yeah, well, is it, it so it really is Republicans, you could argue, are virtue spenders and Democrats are virtue savers. So they're both sort of they're both resting on this. This the, the Republicans say, well, we have to virtuously spend here in the Defense Department. We have to virtuously spend uh, here to build this wall because of the, the, the moral thing that they've attached to the border, whether we are whether that's. I mean, I don't think that's true, but let's, for the sake of argument, they're saying that's true. And Democrats will go, well, no, no, we're virtue savers. We'll figure out how to get you out of this, but we'll also rescue the banks. We'll also do this, but we'll also save some, and everyone's going to have to tighten the belt a little bit. And so I think that the question uh, to me is that um, what we're seeing, it, it seems, and I'm, this is just from the small sampling, very small of my live Coffee with Tony Twitter audience. Uh, very small TV. Let me tell you, TV, having a TV show does not translate into large Twitter viewer numbers as I'm learning. But, um, but, um, it, it's interesting to me to see, um, the, the choke out that's happening, uh, and the false choice between going back to work 
and dying from this pandemic, <laughs> or um, it, it seems, uh, or the other choice is that somehow we let industry die. And it seems like those, that those are false choices that aren't necessary. And it amazes me that the president pitched this idea of reopening, right? By April 1st, the media covered it as if it was a joke. And like the mainstream media covered this, uh, how absurd for him to propose this. But then in the next two weeks, became the conversation of the false choice. He really does drive the conversation and everyone acts as if they're above it. They all slip into it. And now we're all ignoring the third, fourth, fifth, sixth way of ways that we could approach this. I mean, Canada is able to guarantee universal basic income for six months, you know, and they have a smaller economy. Uh, I don't understand why these things, I mean, they're talking about this $3 trillion raise, a two or $3 trillion house proposal that's coming up. Um, and $3 trillion house proposal, 90% of it is Republican ideas, according to Nancy Pelosi. Um, and it seems to me like, why are we, two things you made a point in, in an interview I read, which is why does this have to be wartime footing? Why are we only rising to the occasion in the worst of the worst of emergencies? And what do you think is the way that we translate this into, as you put it, peacetime, um, peacetime spending so that we understand that we don't need to do this just when we're basically at the edge of the cliff and we're getting kicked off into the lava pit that maybe we don't need to be doing this only in the direst of states. What do you think is the thing, the language, the path that takes us out? Well, so it's complicated because I think you're right to suggest that it's not, we're not ready to be out. I mean, we're supposed to be in mm. right now. We, we're trying to push people back out into the workplace, into the theaters and shopping malls and hair salons and all that kind of stuff before it's appropriate to do that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's funny because at the beginning of all of this, in the very early stages, uh, when the economy started to, you know, unravel as um, social distancing and shelter in place orders and so forth went into effect and people, quite frankly, just out of fear, self-selected, they, they stayed home. Yeah. Uh, they didn't want to go out and spend. And so the, the economy started to, um, to show weakness. And uh, Lindsey Graham said, you know, if we're not careful, we're going to end up with a situation where the governor, where the uh, federal government takes over the entire payroll for the United States mm. of America. And my first reaction was, fantastic. Yeah. That's exactly the right thing. I mean, essentially, right? I mean, yeah. the, the point is, I hate these things. I really hate them. There's something I, I have. I think that my ears are defective because I can't wear any earbuds of any brand. I've never found a pair that stays in. Uh, <laughs> Just so for the please, listener at home, Stephanie is furiously battling with the earbuds in her ears. I hate these And I things. understand and I appreciate it because um, it, it, it makes my editing maybe so Maybe I'm easier. very waxy. No, maybe, maybe and by the way, if you're waxy, just slide out. I don't know. As my ear doctor said, <laughs> being waxy is a good thing. <laughs> Why is that? Apparently, because Why? it preserves the the eardrums. It preserves it preserves the membrane. That the more wax you have in your ears, the more likely you have less hearing damage and loss into your older age. So, like, I'm you this know, I I am you know approaching forty six. <laughs> And I sleep with earplugs. This is a total diversion, but let's just do it real. I sleep with earplugs, always have because I always had loud roommates and it became a habit. 
So now I go in, my, my ear doctor will go, I'll go, do you think it's bad that I have that wax? He goes, well, you wear earplugs. He goes, basically, you naturally protect your ears this way. And I went, really? And man, I did the hearing test. Superhuman hearing, Stephanie. Superhuman. There you go. <laughs> All right. So wait, I totally. Derailed. I hope I have really waxy ears. I know. I, I, right now, Stephanie's going. So, you know, I'm one so, of the most important people in the country right now, and this guy's wasting no, no. my time. Okay, <laughs> continues. Look, the 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 idea of of keeping people on payroll and out of the workplace was though for those who could right obviously we have essential and frontline and people who don't have the luxury of staying home and and sheltering in place yes um but for those who could we asked them look do this to help us do this to help us save lives flatten the curve prevent the system healthcare system from becoming overwhelmed that's your job right. help us save lives right? right help us flatten the curve and and for that we should have found a way to let people continue to bring in the income that they were accustomed to bringing in every month. Why? Yes. Because your, your rent depends on it. Your mortgage depends on it. Your car payment, your student loan payment, your utilities, right. you know, you have recurring expenses. Even if you're home and you're not in the malls and you're not out spending money in the mm -hmm. economy, you, there are certain things you can't avoid. Recurring right. expenses are there and, and people need food. Some people have medicines that they have to have and they have recurring expenses. And that's about it for right. a lot of people right now, right? So the, the real challenge early on was just, you know, hitting pause on much of the real economy right. without also hitting pause on the cash flow that right. people are dependent upon and so right. that everything didn't unravel further. So, I mean, the payroll or paycheck protection program, that was designed to try to keep workers on payroll attached to their employers, you know, as well as I do, oh, it wasn't executed it was well. If it, if it had been executed well, then we wouldn't great. have 33 and a half, no, 36 million people now, right, unemployed, because yeah. the idea was to keep you on payroll. And that right. means employed. We didn't do that. Um, but so, so anyway, we're, I think, in a phase of this where we're going to have fits and starts, where... Yes. We're going to open up a little bit. Things, you know, people are going to um, ignore the social distancing and the wearing of masks. And we're right. going to have outbreaks and hotspots all over the country. You'll see uh, governors, mayors tighten up again. And, and so we're going to go through this undulation yeah. uh, in the real economy. And so the question is, how can policy best manage that right. if, if that's the future? And then on the other side of this, there is recovery, and that's what you asked about. I mean, right. there are opportunities. I keep saying the the silver lining, maybe if there is one in all of this, is that the more that we, and I say we, I mean policymakers, says the more the policy response um, fails to hold things together, the more the pieces fall apart. Right. And the more pieces there are lying around, the more opportunity there is to pick them up and assemble them differently yeah. from before is, we don't have is, to put them back together this is the classic yeah? tailor well this is the metaphor of the the tailor right that the the boom in um the textiles industry 
in the late 19th, early 20th century in New York were all these immigrants who were working on the floors of these massive textile cutting companies and taking all of the spare fabric, right? And they were then creating their own companies out of those spare fabrics. And it was a huge boom, right? I mean, the textiles industry in New York down in 34th Street uh, on the west side was basically spurred most of the growth in the west side of Manhattan in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Isn't it, wouldn't it make sense, sort of, there's two things I always talk about that I think are even more extreme, especially when I sometimes have people from the far, far left come and sort of challenge me saying that maybe I'm a little too century. I sort of always respond and say, listen, I believe in a $30 minimum wage, not a $15 minimum wage. And I also believe in tying the $30 minimum wage to cost of living. Let's just forever make it law that cost of living and wage are t- are bound together at the minimum level if we're not going to offer a universal basic income, right? Like if we're not going to offer some insurance, pol- like there's no reason anyone should not be getting money to, as, as you put it, and as um, I was looking at this other article in the Financial Times, this, um, I'm not going to pronounce his name, Pierre Bose Goubert, who uh, was a writing in the the late 17th century and told Louis uh, the 14th that, hey, we got to put more money in that like everything about one person's spending is another person's earning. Right. And vice versa. So does it make sense that uh, tying uh, basic uh, the basic wage to cost of living so that we never have this terrible stretch that's happened since the 70s where people are essentially earning I mean, the notion that $15 an hour is a large amount of money when, like, I think back to being a restaurant host in the early aughts, it, like 2000, and, like, I was like, you know, you got 12 bucks an hour. And that was, like, a you know, decent enough to get by, but it wasn't a lot of money. The idea that we're only $3 ahead of that 20 years later, and it's still none of it matches cost of living makes no sense to me. And is there a way you can do that, or is that too absurd a notion to try to tie minimum uh, wage to cost of living? Well, sure, there are ways to do it. Um, I think that the the MMT policy uh, Mm -hmm. proposal has for more than a couple of decades now been um, the establishment of a public option in the labor market. So people talk about a public option in healthcare. Well, we can have a public option in the labor market. I worry very much about... Um, veering toward a basic income guarantee okay. where we ignore the, the the entrenched unemployment and likely very long term for millions of people who are right. not going to, you know, this economy is not going to snap back. They're not going to be reabsorbed and they could be facing years of unemployment, Absolutely. right? And so I like very much and always have the idea of creating a, a public option of having a, a federal jobs guarantee. God yes. knows there's more than enough work that needs to be done. Yes. Rebuilding, right? With healthcare, with housing, with the green economy, and I could go on and on. So let's think about what millions of people could be paid a living wage, good right. wages. So what you do is you establish a floor. So if the federal government said, we are going to uh, introduce a federal job guarantee, it will be a public option. Anyone who wants work and can't find a job anywhere else in the economy or can't find as good a job right. can come and take employment in this public service employment program. 
And so we put you to work, you get a living wage, you get benefits, you get paid sick leave, you get retirement, you get health care, you build your package, your wage and benefit package. And that becomes the de facto minimum right? Yes. For the economy as a whole, it sets a standard. It's a comprehensive any business minimum. that doesn't, any business that wants to skimp and tell their workers, no, we, we won't pay you that much. We won't provide that benefit. Well, the pe people can vote with their feet, say, well, I, I want the public option then, yes. right? So the question then that you raise is how do you ensure, so that's the new federal minimum, because right, right now, you know, if you think about it, the federal minimum wage isn't $7.25 an hour. No, it's it, it, well, the federal minimum wage is is that. Right. But the minimum wage in this yeah. country is zero because right. zero is the wage you are paid if you're unemployed. Yes. So okay, you I have a job. You, yeah. yeah. So you have a job guarantee. You set a floor and then you can adjust the floor as right. needed over time. So you you could index to inflation or you could do something a little bit different, which we've thought about which would be indexing to the Fed's inflation target. Do I get to get a little wonky? Oh, you could get as wonky as you want. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. So, so the Fed has an inflation target of 2%. Okay. They want to see inflation sit at 2% per year. Okay. So if inflation's running at 2% per year, and your wages are only growing at 1% per year, right. then you're losing ground. Your right. real wage is declining over time. So you could index the wage to the Fed's inflation target. So every time inflation misses on the downside, you get 2% wage adjustment, which does what? It helps oh, yeah. pull actual inflation up toward the Fed's target. Whereas if inflation was running at 3% and the Fed is targeting 2 then you might say, you know, to keep inflationary pressures down, we index the wage to the target 2%. So you get a 2% pay raise, not a 3% pay raise, which helps to keep inflation. Because what economists yes. often worry about is a wage price spiral, where every time inflation goes up, wages go up. So you'd start chasing uh, right, higher right. inflation with higher wages, but and and that's how it sort of and that's how it metastasizes, right? That's how you get something like Germany post World War One, where it starts to just keep climbing and climbing until money's worth nothing. Well, what happened in Germany? Yeah, the German example, it wasn't a wage price spiral. That was a, a different thing. But yeah, you could get uh, a competition over. Um, income shares between capital and labor. Right. And if labor begins to win a little bit of ground, then businesses respond by raising prices because they don't want to see their profit margins decline. Right. So prices go up and then workers say, oh, prices went up. I want a wage increase. And then right. if they're successful in the wage increase, then businesses say, oh, wait, my then it's just yeah. tug of war. Yeah. So, but the, the job guarantee itself is, uh, is a really nice um, way to anchor prices to stabilize right. inflationary pressures because you're setting a, a anchor to the basic wage in the economy as a whole. A world on the brink. And as humanity strives to survive, we search for the light in the darkness. Well, your search is over. The real Tony on Patreon is the mighty torch of reason in unreasonable times. Support and subscribe to patreon.com backslash therealtony and gain access to exclusive footage, audio, photos, and early podcast releases. 
Support for The Real Tony on Patreon ensures that Coffee with Tony and all Tony-related products and creations will exist for all perpetuity in all times and universes. A basic subscription is just $5 a month. Go to patreon.com backslash therealtony and subscribe today. Civilization is counting on you. On this task force, it's this new, the combining of sort of the Bernie and the Biden uh, philosophies and hoping to build platforms in the uh, the Democratic Party that reflect all the points of view in a way that uh, unifies the party in some fashion. And um, I'm, it's really exciting that you're a part of this task force. And so um, this is, I hope you will bring these in and go and, and these are my personal suggestions that I uh, need you to express, even if it, they drum you out of the meeting, Stephanie, you have, I'm giving these to you. You must say them. I don't And I don't care if you have to scream them over anybody else talking. Why not expand defense spending to cover a medical core, a hiring core, a rebuilding core, an education core? If that's where everyone likes to put the money is in defense spending. Why not just take the Department of Defense and basically fold a bunch of other departments into it and diversify the department heads within the Department of Defense so that Republicans will be like, well, we can't cut defense spending because it's really we got to keep upping defense spending. That's our brand. But we have a medical corps. We have a. Uh, a production core. So why shouldn't the federal government get into the job of competing? With, why not make a why not make a government car? Why not process a government food brand? Why not do all of that? Why not get in and compete? Because this is my second part of this question. That's sort of the joke proposal. But here's the other part of it, which is the serious part is isn't corporate feudalism isn't the problem that essentially democracy in the nation state has been usurped by these multinational, extranational corporate states that are really turning the a lot of representative members of our governmental bodies into dukes and duchesses that are more serve in service of the multinational because of the donations they receive and so on, as opposed to in service of the people, or they're trying to strike a balance in that. And that... These corporate feudalistic states still actually don't have nearly the amount of money or power that a nation state has. But the nation state has become like the elephant with the string, where it believes that the corporate feudal state is more powerful and that we need to figure a way out of this toxic dynamic with the multinationals. Now, my proposal is sort of a joke, but at the same time, I do believe, and I agree with you, why doesn't the government just get into the game the same way that if we got into the healthcare game, we would basically force most insurance companies to either acquiesce or get out of the business, and we could actually stabilize healthcare in a way that look at the failure of not having universal healthcare right now. Look at how desperately and the idea that tying the fact that the proposal by the president was to uh, to do a cut in payroll tax, which would not matter to the 35 million unemployed people. How radically out of touch is the policy thinking right now coming out of the White House? But also, is there a way the federal government can maybe get into the game and that that's the way that they will sort of alleviate this fear they have of uh, essentially going up against 
these large corporate multinationals that are actually not as powerful as they present themselves to be? Um, okay, so I agree with you, of course, that um, much of Congress has been sent, the, the power has been usurped by corporate interests and the lobbyists and so forth. Of course, that's true. We need campaign finance reform. We need publicly funded elections. We need to do away with citizens. You know, all of that stuff is true. Now, I used to make the case, it's not entirely dissimilar from your first point, mm -hmm. but I used to say, you know, let's, if the, if the big concern is we can't add to the deficit and we can only do that for things that are in our national interest, like defense spending. Mm -hmm. So we never worry about the pay for question when it comes to voting for the Pentagon budget then we need to broaden the definition of national interest. Mm -hmm. So education is in our national interest. Healthcare is in our national interest. So if you have to say there's an off budget line item where these things don't count, when we put dollars into this line item of the budget, it's off budget, it doesn't add to the deficit, we're just gonna account for it differently, yeah. call it national security spending or some damn thing. Um, I don't care how you finagle it. I think the problem is whether you, um, had your first tongue in cheek sort of put it all under the Pentagon and then we can have all the things we really want. I think the, the reality and the problem is that there aren't enough members of Congress who actually want those things. Right. They will not vote for them. Not right. if you call it defense, it doesn't matter what you call it. If it really threatens private health insurance companies, charter schools, whatever the case may be, they're not gonna vote for it. Even if you label it, come on, you want this defense spending, don't you? They say, no, I know what you're doing. Okay, so here's some things that like, here's a Twitter, tr Twitter trend that happened the other day that I find interesting and I've been sort of trying to defend on my show, which is again, not watched by a lot of people, but, uh, <laughs> but um, which is capitalism is dead, capitalism is bad, right? And I feel like that's such a great slogan or like a fun rallying cry on a Twitter thread. But I don't think people really want to understand really what they mean when they're talking about capitalism, that there's consumerism and corporatism. Right. And that also, um, have we really ever practiced capitalism? I know one of the analogies that I think you saw in the last Trump versus Bernie was talking about how the United States is a lot like Trump, which is that slavery would be the cash infusion that Trump got from his dad, that the United States didn't really build, pull itself up by its bootstraps. It built its economy on the backs of slave wages. Obviously we have a, I mean, slave uh, output. Obviously we have transitioned in some ways, and in some ways we are still sadly lagging behind in, in our uh, treatment of African-Americans in the United States. Um, but uh, so has the United States actually ever really practiced capitalism? And two, are, isn't what we're talking about and sort of looking at it like a spice rack, which is you have capitalism, you have socialism, you have communism, you have these different isms and they're all spices, but you would never just take garlic powder and just dump it on something and just have the garlic powder. You wouldn't just dump hot paprika on there. What you do is you combine the spices to make a good flavor, right? And that maybe what we're really looking at is combining spices to create, because there's a lot of benefits to capitalism, right? Like if uh, for me, I look at how I've been able to start up multiple small little businesses online to essentially offset the loss of my in-person work that I was doing that was cut off in the middle of a tour, right? 
uh, isn't that the self-starting idea of I can form something, file my LLC, connect it, and then I am in charge of taking the risk of doing my business, getting the SBA loan, doing those things, that there's a value in that and there's a relationship that you should have to the government that should also aid you, regulate you, support you, uh, right? And so do you think that trends or statements where it's like capitalism is dead, blah, are, I get that they're, it's just a Twitter trend, but do you think that people maybe need to understand that there's a fundamental disconnect between consumerism, corporatism, and the term capitalism, or do we need a new term? Well, I don't know what new term uh, I would invent. I can tell you that I've always thought about capitalisms rather than capitalism singular, because, you know, I, as an economist, I um, was sort of raised on the work of Hyman Minsky. Yes. And Minsky had a, since, since you're talking about spices and food, I'll bring up uh, Minsky's famous quip was that there are as many varieties of capitalism as Heinz has pickles. Well, the Heinz really? pickles slogan you remember was 57 varieties. That's right. So Minsky was like, there are at least 57 varieties of capitalism. You right. can have small government capitalism um, of the kind we had before the Great Depression. And he argues that that was the failed capitalism. Yes. That capitalism failed because we had the Great Depression and markets didn't do what, you know, the textbook story of how capitalism works with competition right. and markets self-correcting and all that kind of stuff the invisible hand and, uh, and yeah. it didn't, it didn't self-correct. Right. Things got increasingly worse and it took the visible hand of government to come in and shape and create jobs and uh, write and new programs, yes. new government programs. Social security was born out of uh, that era and a number of alphabet super job programs and so forth. So you got big government, um, you could call it some welfare state capitalism. And mm -hmm. for a long period of time, that served us pretty well. Now, there were obviously problems in terms of the equity involved and how different people were treated under that form of capitalism. Yes. And so that matters too. But over time, you know, with that big government, this is where we got the 50s and the 60s, the so-called golden age of capitalism, right. when the economy worked pretty well for the majority of people, right? When the middle class was was um, born when uh, you know we were fairly recession proof, um, income inequality came way down, wealth inequality shrunk. And so it, this was a, a successful period um, right. by you know uh, all standards. But then we chipped away at it. We right. chipped away at the welfare state. We relaxed the regulations that you referred to. We took government all out of the picture increasingly and turned more and more back over to markets and then increasingly over to finance in particular. Yes. And so we got financial capitalism and uh, other forms of capitalism that um, had less desirable, let's say, yes. outcomes, more frequent recessions, deeper recessions, longer periods of joblessness, more inequality and all of that sort of thing. So um, I, I just don't know what ver what word to use for the variety of capitalism, equitable capitalism, yeah. um, resilient capitalism, green capitalism, I don't know. We're in casino capitalism now. That yeah. to me is where we're at is casino capitalism, all these hedge funds, all these business bros, we're in business bro and business babe, to be fair to everybody, this sort of um, gambling. And it's uh, interesting that Trump is president now, right? Because he's presided over the failure of many casinos. And now he's presiding over the failure of this casino as well. Um, 
And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I was seeing um, another piece I read about people who are basically venting their IRAs now and venting, you know, they're they're trying to basically get money out of where they're. And, you know, I never, ever played the market. And I'm an I'm an actor who was a waiter. Right. So I never had an IRA. I never had more than five hundred dollars in my checking account for most of my life. I remember before the Trump versus Bernie tour, probably before I first met you, I went back and forth on this tour and um, I uh, uh, I uh, went to a coin star because I had so little money. I had to change coins to uh, pay a bill. And this was like, you know, mm-hmm. I was an improv teacher. I, you know, made money, but I would ebb and flow in and out of cash. I think that's a lot of people's lives. A lot of people don't own, they rent. And you, and this is for the listeners, you know, less than for Stephanie is like, you're passing people and talking to people all the time who look like they have it together enough. And they do, but they have it together with nothing underneath no insurance whatsoever if things fall apart. But the interesting thing was I always felt that the markets to me reminded me of a casino. And I know in casinos you lose generally and that the people who are running the casino win. And I never wanted to get involved in the market. I finally did a SEP IRA when I got my TV show. And it was the, I still am not sure if I like that decision because I watched the market tank 30%. And I watched that money that I probably could have had in a, fireproof lockbox under my bed and it would have done better. And so I feel like one question I have is, is, is the stock market, are the markets, even unless there is serious regulation reform and change, wouldn't it be better to just remove the markets completely and instead create laws that form sort of profit sharing with workers that really the investors are less important than the workers, that the workers should be the ones who have a percentage and, and should have, uh, you know, small bits of ownership or profit sharing that wouldn't everyone be better off that way than gain. And if, if people want to gamble on businesses, let that exist, but let it not be a barometer for our economy. I mean, is, is that a possibility? Cause to me, it seems like we're letting a casino determine our fate. And that seems very dangerous to me. Well, yeah, I get, I mean, I know what you're saying. I just think that I don't know how you quote unquote remove markets. I think that um, you're absolutely right to say say that uh, there is a, a casino aspect to all of this and that there are things that we could do, for example, share buybacks, yeah. right? mergers and acquisitions, things that yes. um, it, that are done to juice, to pump share prices. Right. Um, you know, what the, what the Fed is reacting to right now is in part anyway, um, big corporations, many of whom, you know this, uh, ha- had the opportunity, they were generating huge profits, but what did they do? They didn't set them aside. They didn't you know, they're holding them in retained earnings. They didn't plow it back into the business. They didn't pay workers more. They yeah. didn't use it to give raises and so forth. They bought their own shares back, leaving right. them more vulnerable in a moment like this. So, right. um, yeah, I, I think there are a lot of things that we could do, but I still think that uh, it's a nice thing to be able to offer people a, a place to invest their money sure. in a sound company and to have, yeah. So, um, 
So there's just about finding that balance between, you know, letting the casino completely run away with things right. and having it be a speculative, what there was a, there's a famous Keynes passage. Um, and it was, I could think of it if I had enough time, but I'm yeah. not going to waste the time to do it. Well, yeah. I was going to say, uh, is it Michael? You mean Michael Keynes, right? No, I'm kidding. So <laughs> no, <laughs> Michael. Candy Canes. I, I know her too, but uh, for a long time ago. I went to high school with a girl whose name was actually Candy Cane. Really? Terrific. <laughs> I haven't thought, I hadn't thought of her in a million years. You just rung that bell, rang that bell. Yeah. When I'm not playing Captain Jean-Luc Picard, I'm on Cameo booking cameo.com backslash the real Tony because if there's anyone who can make it so and tell me there are four lights it's that guy hi I'm William Shatner and when I'm not cleaning out my pap machine or booking a flight on priceline.com or signing all my autographs and mailing them to my fans or writing my latest tech war novel I'm booking cameo.com backslash the real Tony because he's the real deal. This is the president of the United States. We have everything under control. Everything's fine. It's the best it's ever been. And because of that, not even 65,000 American deaths. No. No matter how many deaths, it's not going to stop me from going to cameo.com backslash the real Tony and booking him today. I did have this moment yesterday. I was looking at people's faces and masks in Astoria, and I was riding my bike around and thinking of this. And it actually does connect to a question is that uh, the psychological effect, something that we don't talk about and talking about and linking the idea of economics and language. So, cause one thing you talk about is you talk about the origins, right? You use this clamshell analogy, right? So I pull the coconuts, uh, you get the fish. And at a certain point we go, let's just use the clamshells as representative of the coconuts and the fish. So that we sort of save a little time. This is what I read in this financial times article. Maybe someone <laughs> didn't, Oh, but that's not him. That's not a Kelton. Kelton doesn't subscribe to that. No, no, no. Uh, I know you don't. Right, right. No, I don't. I know you don't subscribe to it, uh, subscribe to it. But I'm saying the, that that was, little barter story. Yes, that, that's the barter yes. story, and that you would say no, that that actually money is a debt note, right? It is a it is a representation of debt, correct? That we create, right? Is that am I wrong? Or, or, or? it is all. Yeah, okay. yeah, don't, I, I, you're not wrong. You're just um, only saying one side of the equation okay. so that it's a representation of a relationship. One side is the creditor side. The other side is the debtor. So it's always both. Yes. Uh, right. Simultaneously an asset and a liability or a, a debt and a credit. And each dependent on each other, right? Each dependent, like one needs yeah, the other yeah. in order to exist. So where we think about this in nature, right? In nature, we look at buying um, uh, twin um, particles, right? That we have two subatomic muons. One exists 20 million light years across the universe. One is right here in my living room and they are spinning at the same rate and they are affected at the same time. 
even though they are 200 million light years away, okay? In our psychology, two hemispheres, or as uh, Carl Jung would talk about, the tension of opposites, the notion that I have to hold two opposing ideas in my mind at the same time in order to actually mm -hmm. develop a new third idea that is a, a negotiation of the two, right? So I was looking out at the, the masked people and the limited, limited space that I now cover. I ride my bike and sort of try to take in other vistas because I believe that the brain needs to take in new information because the brain is a pattern-making machine. And if you starve it of new patterns, it will start to redundantly pattern itself. And that's how you get neurosis, right? Is when you are sort of repatterning over your own experiences without new ones. And one of the thoughts that, that came to my mind was the psychology of money, right? And the psychology of currency being paid for money, being paid money, what the and, and what it means. That wages and earning also mean, and spending mean comfort. They mean security, right? The toilet paper purchasing. I read a great article about how Purchasing toilet paper is sort of actually a psychological outcropping of people going, this is something that wipes my ass. This is the most vulnerable thing that I can think of. And I need to have this thing that protects me vulnerably, right? So that consumption is not just a act of a rational act, right? Consumption, spending, work, all those things are also what we would, I would say are not irrational, but are emotional or psychological acts. They have more to do with our production, our sense of worth, and our sense of possession and what gives us security. And so do you think that the same way that you talk about the development of currency and exchanges and how we develop, we develop language the same way, right? We developed a, a currency of verbal interaction, right? And that there's multiple currencies, right? Multiple languages all around the world. We exchange that language with each other effortlessly, right? We don't even think about the currency of our interaction, the currency we're spending here talking, right? And is that we need to look maybe more at money, economics, and the relationship it has to our lives, not as a separate burden or tool that we keep away from us that is either a impending threat or a great reward, but as part of the language of our psychology and our existence and our worth in society. That we create money and do, I mean, I'm not saying that this is true. Maybe it isn't. I think it's like we created this as part of a way to satisfy this part of our psychology that needs to produce new things, make new patterns, and also feel a sense of worth. We all know if you're locked in your home right now, which I hope you are, that you are doing things every day to create senses of worth. If you don't have work that day, maybe you clean the kitchen this day and you normally clean it on Saturday or you decide to bake bread or, hey, you know what? I'm going to try to build a shelf. It is in our nature to produce and it is in our nature to share and produce. So I wonder how much of your theory do you ever think about um, ever partnering or, or, or do you ever consider this idea of the psychology of our relationship to money and worth and how maybe part of the, the desperate state we're in right now is, is really sort of like we're like a feral dog. We're like a feral animal. We, we haven't received much love. Right. And that our economy is like a feral animal that needs to be showered, washed and like taken care of. 
That's it. That's all I have. Uh, <laughs> is that crazy? I don't know if it is. I think it's too smart for me, maybe. Um, <laughs> no, don't say uh, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, there's so much money is one of these impossible words to to get. Economists do not have a, a unified definition of money. We tend to define money by what money does, not what money is. So we describe money based on the way it works or functions. So we say money is a medium of exchange. Right, money right, is right. a store of value. Money is a unit of account, right? That's that's right. not what money is. That's what money does. It's how money works. So when I was a uh, long, long time ago, maybe the first or second um, time I published in an academic journal, I actually tried to give a a definition of money that makes sense to me. Yes. And it's risky to try to define money. But I defined it from memory as a, a balance sheet phenomenon that records a social debt relationship. And I think the word social is really important. That's what yes. we were talking about. Yes, um, It implies that there's somebody else involved in this. It's not just you. Yes. Um, we're interdependent, right? And right. because money is... The, one of the important things that money does is is clear payments, right? And we yeah. have obligations to one another. So I work in a grocery store stock, stocking shelves and somebody yeah. pays me for the yeah. time that I spend putting groceries out so that you can walk into the grocery store right. and find the eggs and find the chicken and find the, to the toilet paper and whatever it is that you need, right? Yeah. And so I, I get paid for making a social contribution. I do something. You yes. then, you know, have your income for doing the kinds of things that you're doing, entertaining, and that's your contribution. And so these these money is changing hands as we each sort of recognize, oh, yeah. he made a contribution of some kind. That's where he got this token. That's where this receipt came from. And right. then you pass the receipt on to someone else. And then they can say, oh, I received this receipt because of some contribution that I made. Now, there are some actors in the economy who are getting passive income, right? Right. They're right. getting, and we might talk about what that real contribution is that some of these folks are making yes. uh, as they collect, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever. But that's kind of how I guess I think about money. And there is a psychology to that. It is interesting to me that we don't think of ourselves as a global tribe and that we don't shame ourselves at an international level, that we don't shame those. I mean, Jeff Bezos, the notion of someone having a trillion dollars is offensive. I mean, to me, I'm going to say, because I don't need you to wear the stink of my opinion. I think Jeff Bezos is truly, that's offensive. It's just offensive. It's offensive when, here's things that disgust me, Stephanie, I just want to tell you them. It disgusts me that within a week of this lockdown in early March, Facebook has an ad about COVID-19 exploiting the work of people who are suffering, working, and not getting paid a lot of money. And they spent how much money to make that ad? And they're, they're, they are playing on our fears, playing on our the existential fear of what's happening in society. And in addition to that, you have Jeff Bezos making an ad thanking Amazon workers while cutting their overtime pay and a system, a news and information delivery system that is uh, reinforcing and not calling out things that are grotesque and are not 
radical. See, what happens is that this outrage gets relegated to the radical, right? They go, oh, the ra radical left, radical lefty. So, you know, how dare you criticize Amazon? Blah. And also, we're all hypocrites. I order from Amazon. I have to. I, I have to order things from Amazon. I'm stuck in my house. There's certain things I need to get, like my earplugs. We talked about our earplugs, my earplugs earlier. But the second thing uh, that is disturbing to me is um, when you think of the uh, the idea that we have an opportunity in our world to, to demand more of those who, hey, listen, if you come up with an idea that's a really brilliant idea and you make a lot of money off of it, great, good for you. I don't fault anybody for that. I do fault someone when they hide their money offshore, when they don't pay any tax, when they don't contribute. Do you think we need to return to a 90% tax rate on the ultra wealthy? So uh, in MMT, we do not think of taxation for the federal government, the way we think of taxation for state and local governments. State and local governments tax because they need revenue to pay the bills. The federal government taxes for a different reason. It is not revenue constrained. It doesn't depend upon um, tax receipts in order to be able to fund its budget. So we think about it differently. And that is liberating because here's what it means. It means that if you are the federal government of the United States of America and you wanna do infrastructure investment, make public colleges and universities tuition free, have universal uh, pre-K, have Medicare for all, whatever it is, you don't have to do this thing where you say, how am I going to pay for it? The same way a state or local government would have to do. So what we've seen, you know, 2019, we both watched, right? A very crowded uh, primary, yes. Democratic hopefuls put forward uh, varying degrees of pl platforms with high ambition, you know, medium yeah. ambition, whatever. And, and the question was, how are you going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? And by and large, the answer was, we'll get rich people to pay for this stuff because right. that's where all the money is. So we'll go find the money on with people like Jeff Bezos or the Waltons or the Koch brothers or whatever. Mm -hmm. Now that does a couple of things. First, it, I think it makes you dependent on the very wealthy because yes. you're saying effectively my ability to bring this agenda to bear, to pass yes. this, to, to make this a reality for people is contingent upon my ability to raise taxes on the rich. So unless and until I can push those taxes up on those guys, I can't fund any of this stuff. Yeah. I have to hold the progressive agenda hostage while I try to peel a few bucks off the billionaires. And you heard people say, I won't name names, but you heard some people talk about a wealth tax or something like that and say, you know, they won't even feel it. They won't even notice it yes. because we're just going to peel a little bit off. Well, that's like, wait a minute, then what's the point? Yes. What's the point if you're not going to address concentrations of wealth and income inequality with, with vigor, right? Yes. You said 90%. I don't know that 90% is the right marginal tax rate at the top. Maybe it is. Um, if you're going to do a wealth tax, you know, what is the purpose of doing that? For the federal government, it's not to come up with the revenue to fund the programs. It, it, we shouldn't think of it like that because right. we won't be bold enough. We'll right. just pick at the edges so that we can pick, right? You yes. see yes. you see where how MMT thinks very differently. So if, if you set the goal of saying the levels of income and wealth inequality that exist in America today are destructive. They're destructive to our democracy. They're destructive to the functioning of our economy. Maybe you noticed what has happened to the wealth of Jeff Bezos and other extremely wealthy people 
in the wake of the pandemic. Yes. It's exploding. Yes. It's, it's their wealth is exploding right now. Right. Meanwhile, Jerome Powell testified a couple of days ago, chairman of the Fed, right? Yes. He said that 40, roughly 40% of households, of families with incomes of $40,000 or less, 40% of them have lost jobs. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yes. And, and you mentioned earlier, half of all people who have retirement savings have said that they have either already tapped or they're planning to tap their retirement because of COVID. Yeah. So they're they're going to bleed what little retirement right that they've set aside very quickly. So at the same time, so if you said, look, we have too much inequality, too much wealth inequality, too much income inequality, let's tackle it. Not because we want the revenue, but for the sake of our democracy, for the sake of building a more just and equitable and and um, better functioning economy. Right. Then I think you set out with those goals in mind and then you arrive at the right tax rates and mix of tax policy and so forth. So this is the global tribe idea in a way that we were talking about too, which is the tribal notion of what's the best for all of us, which seems so astonishing. Like what, to what I hear you saying too is like, well, this is about not just economy. This is about the sanctity of our society and democracy and also our safety. I mean, where do we think crime originates from when if you have 40 million people out of work and people are starving? I mean, listen, if I reached a point where I had no food, I would break into a store because I would need to get food. Like there are going to be people who are going to turn to. And, and this to me is the slow and dangerous slide towards an even more frightening police state. And a, a, I feel like this can cut in such a terrible, terrible way. But now I want to ask some fun ones that are real quick. Why did we have a gold standard? That's complicated. Perfect. That's not rapid fire. All right, good. Here's the next one. Are there any funny economist stories? Has there ever been a funny economist story? Oh, my God. I'm sure there have. Do you know what I mean? We're like super cheap. Um, boring, not, you know, monotone. Your friends, your friends with Bernie, has he ever seen the president show? And if you know, he has I sent it, that you record. Him? You did? You sent the record to him? You, you guys sent one of the, I think, limited the real oh, the yeah, recording, we, yeah, the, the record. Yes. Yeah, you, that's right. And oh. to, to Jane and Bernie, and that was, that was what, years ago? I was living back in Lawrence, Kansas at the time. Well, I hope, um, I hope that, that, that he listened to it because I think he would have loved it. Um, and then, I'm, sure he, I'm sure he did. <laughs> okay, here we go. Are there any billionaires you know who would give me a million dollars? Oh, who would give you a million dollars? And could you pass my name um, along to them? We'll pass your name along, uh, but but I'll I'll split it with you. Uh, That's a fair no, deal. I, I don't right. have a lot of billionaire friends. And here's right? the here's the final one. You're so smart. Why would you talk to a moron like me? <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> she wouldn't suffer my self degradation, and I appreciate that. Uh, what a great conversation with Stephanie Kelton. So smart, so funny and um, engaging and makes uh, money, economics, uh, debt theory interesting and accessible. And I do think that I will look back on this recording and I will be able to tell people, hey, I spoke to this 
incredibly important mind that changed the face of American economics and global economics in the 21st century, and that's pretty cool. And you can buy her book, The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory and the Birth of the People's Economy. Uh, order, Pre-order it now. It's available June 9th, 2020. Uh, it's a number one bestseller in public finance already. Uh, Pre-order it. Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Order it from your local bookstore if they will mail it to you. Uh, obviously, always support the local economy. But get it wherever you can because if we want to change even the economy we participate in in order to purchase the book... You got to read the theory, understand it, and execute it. Um, so anyway, I am looking forward to comments and thoughts this week as people uh, listen to the podcast. And uh, yeah, what are we doing this week? Well, we've got a lot. We've got the Supreme Court decisions. I think that New York will be a yay. I think Congress will be a nay, setting a terrible precedent. But that'll be my guess. It'll be a split decision or two you know, opposing decisions. Um, I think that the march of, oh, isn't it embarrassing? Trump is embarrassing himself. Obama's a great president. As much as that's all true, it will not resonate. And instead, cable news will continue to cover Obamagate and look for whatever thing they can say was questionable in order to make a story because they have to make a story about everything. And yet again, the real villain here is not President Trump. It's not even the Trump administration. And I'll tell you why. They did exactly what they said they would do. And the primetime media and the cable news media and NBC News and ABC and CNN and Fox and uh, CBS News, all of them, and the media sort of, you know, for-profit media atmosphere in general, they are liars. They lie and they misrepresent and they give equality and equal weight to insane arguments in order to drive ratings and to get uh, advertisers. And it's disgusting. It's gross. I don't always think it's the faces of the news that do this. I definitely think it is the owners and the producers, the, not the producers, uh, the executives uh, pushing this. So it's a disgusting just absolutely disgusting thing that's happening. Obamagate, any of this stuff shouldn't be covered. It's not even worth our energy. It's just a distraction from the complete mismanagement of this pandemic. And he, the White House and the media and everyone is going to work hard to distract us because uh, it's so much easier to keep distracting people with shiny objects then confront uh, the major issues that face us, which I think we just discussed with Stephanie Kelton. And most of them have to do with how our, our economy is uh, functioning and who is uh, benefiting from it. So um, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Stephanie. And uh, as always, tune in to Coffee with Tony live Monday through Friday, 1215 p.m. Eastern Time, 9.15 a.m. Pacific. Uh, you can support me at patreon.com uh, backslash Tony. Book me on Cameo, cameo.com backslash Tony. You can check me out on Twitch, twitch.tv backslash Shaddy Fatty, and all those good things. And uh, I will be seeing you on the next podcast, or I'll be speaking and you'll be listening. Thank you. Goodbye.